Hi, Journey. How you doing today? Great to be with every single one of you in the presence of our great and amazing, magnificent God. Just to pour our hearts out to him, to hear from him. I invite you to think about making this Christmas all about a global impact. Maybe you would consider uh, not purchasing a gift for someone and instead giving a global impact gift in Ethiopia in their name and in their honor. And if you're so inclined, really this is just an invitation. It's not a high-pressure sales pitch, just an invitation to think globally, to think kingdom of God with Christmas time. And some folks out at the information center in the lobby would love to help you with that around those trees if you're so inclined. You got a notes page today for a sermon that probably will never get preached, and so I invite you just to use that notes page maybe for some notes. Uh, uh, thinking about giving that sermon yesterday, uh, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do it, and so uh, yesterday afternoon I actually wrote an entirely different message for this weekend uh, because events like the one that unfolded at that elementary school in a picturesque Connecticut town on Friday, I think really reveal to every single one of us uh, how much we have this insatiable, unquenchable desire to make sense out of everything that happens in life, don't we? We just do. None of us ever wants anything in life to be just a random occurrence. We want all the dots to be neatly and tidily connected. And for every single thing that happens in life, we want to know where it goes on the shelf. We want to know exactly what category every single thing falls into. And that unstoppable force that's in all of us to have a category in a box for everything really, I think, shows up big when a significant tragedy strikes, like Friday. 26 innocents senselessly murdered, 20 of them little little kids. And what's inside of every one of us is this, you've probably felt it since Friday, on Friday, this automatic questioning response that just wells up in us, doesn't it? And what's it ask? Why? That's exactly right. This automatic why. Why in the world would a loving, gracious, forgiving, all-powerful, all-sovereign God allow something like that to happen? We want to know, where does this fit on the shelf? Where's this go? Where's this hang? And we do that because we want that tragedy on Friday to make sense, and it doesn't, does it? Not even close to making sense. And we want Friday's events to have purpose because nobody, nobody on planet Earth wants to shrug their shoulders and say to any one of those families who lost loved ones on Friday, that's life. None of us wants to do that. So instead, we get real busy pretty darn quickly, and we get to scratching around in the meaning pile, try to figure out the answer to the why question, right? And we say things like, well, someday we'll get it, someday we'll understand, eventually it'll all begin to make sense, and on and on, we we know all those things we say. Because we don't want anybody who's suffering to ever be left just hanging, do we? Nobody. We want to help and we want to put a serving towel over our arm. And what's at the bottom of that is we want to uncover the larger purpose in every single 
circumstance, especially in circumstances like Friday in Connecticut. And so you ask the question, where does that drive that's in all of us to have a neat, tidy place for everything to go, where does that come from? Well, I suggest that the Christian worldview has the answer to where that comes from. And it's this. It's because, see, we believe that every single person on the face of the earth was made in the very image of God. And it's that God is purposeful, and it's that God is intimately involved in history, and it's that our God does see things, every single thing, in an ordered fashion that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that he, that's God, is a bringer of order out of even the most chaotic, tragic events that we've ever seen. He brings order out of the most chaotic things we can even imagine. And so you see, that means that it's really God's image inside of all of us that that desire to have everything make sense is birthed up out of. And there's no shaking it off. You're never ever going to get rid of that. It's frankly inescapable. And it's so deeply hardwired into all of us that it might actually be how God got your attention in the first place. That might actually be how and why you came to faith in him. Does that sound at all familiar? There you were perhaps trying to do your own thing. You were trying to go your own way. You were trying to forge your own path like so many do. And as you were really busy trying to go your own way, you found your deepest thoughts wandering off to quite a dangerous place and you found yourself going, you know, there must be more to this life. It can't just be about living and dying and trying to make a living in between all of that. That was and always will be the image of God inside of you that's driving all of that. And we know that sometimes things make sense and sometimes they don't and God's connecting things in ways that we don't see right now. And in the midst of it all, things do work out and things do move forward and good things can come from very, very, very bad things like Friday. And the Christmas story is really of particular note in that very vein. Because when you step back and think about it, it really is the textbook example of God stepping down into the seeming randomness and seeming chaos of life and reminding everyone and everything on planet Earth that there is a plan. That no matter how hard or how tragic or how painful life here on Earth gets, that history is indeed moving forward. Because at the end of the day, Christmas time is all about God so intertwining himself with human affairs that you just cannot miss the reality that he understands. You can't miss the reality that he cares. You can't miss the reality that he's actually right there with us in the midst of all our suffering and all our heartbreak and all our pain. And in the light of Friday's tragedy in Connecticut. We're going to look at a passage from the book of Matthew, probably one of the least preached passages in the whole Bible. I think you're about to see why. Because you see, amidst all of this Christmas cheer, all of the Christmas cheer, this passage really is harsh and jarring. It's quite horrific. If you have a Bible, it's Matthew chapter 2 if you want to turn there. You can also follow along on the screens. Jesus was born uh, starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrive in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. We have come to worship him. That's all pretty and neat and fitting, it seems, isn't it? And look at verse three. King Herod, though, was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with those wise men. He learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Fitting. After this interview, the Bible says, after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Cool. Really cool. Worship. Befitting of the king of kings. And then verse 12, when it was time to leave, though, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now things take a twist here, don't they? After the wise men were gone, an angel, verse 13, of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, for Herod is going to search for the child. Why? To kill him. Now things take quite a dark twist, don't they? And so verse 14, that night, Joseph didn't screw around. He left for Egypt with the child and Mary's mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This would have been some length of time. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And things get really, really dark here, and this is why we don't talk much about this passage. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And that's not a normal part of our lead up to the festive Christmas season, is it? We don't see that scene in many nativity sets, do we, right? Roman soldiers with swords drawn looking for boys two years and under so that they can murder them. And yet that is exactly and precisely what happened at the very first nativity, the the real one. It happened. No sooner see had the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds returned to their fields, and Joseph and Mary, they're about to return home from Bethlehem, and here comes the angel warning Joseph, take Mary, take your precious child, flee, get out of here, go to Egypt. 
because this deeply insecure, likely insane old king felt his rule was threatened when he heard that another king had been born. Somebody threatening me, he wasn't going to have it. And so right on Joseph's heels then as he's fleeing with his family, here comes King Herod's soldiers killing every male, every, get that, every male child, two years old and under, both in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. And scholars talk about how this probably wasn't just males that they killed. Scholars suggest that in Roman soldiers' quest to be thorough, they likely wiped out a whole bunch of girls as well just for the sake of being thorough. It's unimaginable. Unimaginable. And we hear that story and it, it wrecks us. Just like Friday wrecks us. And part of what God is trying to communicate to us anytime, but especially at Christmas time, is that in light of events like we read about in Matthew chapter 2, in light of events like Friday, there is suffering in this world. And Jesus came to bear it with us. There's suffering in this world, and Jesus Christ actually came to bear all of this and all of that suffering with us. And you, you just can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a parent in Bethlehem that night about 2,000 years ago, can you? Imagine yourself, try to imagine yourself having this little boy, right, around two years old, and this little guy, he's just precious, and he's captured your heart. He has a sparkle in his eye that brightens your every moment. And then all of a sudden, these soldiers burst into your home. They snatch your sweet son and carry him outside, and they take his life. And, and most of us, we, we can barely even imagine the anguish and the emptiness that that would bring. And that's a very real part of the Christmas story. This happened. And Christmas comes not to a perfect world. Christmas comes to a suffering world. To a suffering, broken, piled up bunch of people. And Christmas also tells us that God never guarantees to take away our suffering. It only pro he only promises to bear up under it with us. And what I take great hope, and I take great faith in this reality, that God isn't just seated on a stool out beyond the stars somewhere far, far away in the universe, sort of looking back, watching all of this. I take great hope, and I put great faith in this reality that God especially through his son Jesus Christ, came to be with us, suffer with us, hurt with us, bleed even with us. And that's the message of every single Christmas, but especially this Christmas. And if you've read the news reports from Friday, out of Friday's tragedy, one of the most horrific questions that the families of the shooting victims have been asking, you may have encountered this question, is they're all asking this question, did our little kids know what was happening to them? Were our kids afraid? Did they realize what was going on? And I don't know the answer to that 
question I don't pretend to know. I, I really don't even want to know, actually. But it is my view that Jesus was with those kids. He was right there in those two classrooms with every single one of those children because that's who he is. He was there. He was there. And Isaiah 53.3 gets right at this. He, that's Jesus, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He's not just out sitting beyond He's in those classrooms. He's with those kids. The second message of Christmas time is this one. There is uncertainty in this world. And God came to lead us right through all that uncertainty. There's uncertainty in the world and God came to lead us and frankly everyone on planet earth through that uncertainty. Just think about Mary and Joseph. Just imagine them grabbing up their stuff as quickly as they could, running out of Bethlehem, headed for Egypt. And they had no idea where they were going to stay. They had no idea what the future would hold for them. The only thing, and I mean the only thing they had to go on was the faith to trust that God was indeed leading the way. God was leading. God had called them. God had told them. God had done all of this. Yeah, absolutely, they had been told by an angel that Jesus was the Savior, he was the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. But can you just imagine the questions that Mary and Joseph would have had? What's our responsibility in that? How exactly do you bring up the Son of God? No pressure there. What, what are we to do next? Go to Egypt, okay, but what's the future look like? How long do we stay in Egypt? Egypt's uncertainty everywhere in the Christmas story. Just like there's uncertainty in every single one of our stories, isn't there? There's uncertainty everywhere. None of us are guaranteed another day. None of us knows what tomorrow is going to bring. You can imagine on Friday morning in Connecticut, Loved ones were getting ready for a busy Friday of work and school and life. They were anticipating a great and fun-filled weekend, anticipating Christmas time is just around the corner, Christmas break. And I assure you, no one was thinking, you know, this is the last time I'm going to see my son or daughter. No one was thinking, this is the last time I'm going to see mom, dad, family, friends. And it was, because that's just how uncertain life is. Is And while life is certainly uncertain, Mary and Joseph had this incredible reality going for them. They trusted. They had faith enough to trust that God was leading, that God was indeed taking care of them every step of the way, which meant that no matter what happened to them, and they had some really bad things threatening to happen to their physical existence, no matter what happened to them, they trusted that God was with them. They trusted that God would not allow anything to touch their soul or any part of them that matters eternally. And so you see, very, very, very bad things were threatening Mary, Joseph, even Jesus' physical bodies, they were safe. 
They were in the safest place they could possibly be, trusting God. Life is incredibly uncertain, and I'm trusting God. And Jesus lived his entire life just that way. And you can imagine this little baby, the very son of God, and his little body being jostled on his family's hurried journey to Egypt. You just see it in your mind's eye, can't you? And it was that same Jesus who would later tell crowds of people how very much that God cared for the birds of the air, how very much he cared and cares for the lilies of the field. Look at Matthew 6, 25 to 30. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life and how many of us struggle to obey that right there. Whether you have enough food and drink, enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? And then get this question, Jesus asking us, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And we sure think they can because we're real busy worrying. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And there's this emphatic, not a chance. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today, thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And that's what it gets to, isn't it? We very often have such little faith. And yet as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have this incredible benefit of knowing that while we don't have a clue about what tomorrow holds, we know him who holds all our tomorrows. Every one of them. Every single one of our tomorrows. And maybe you're a person who isn't yet a follower of Jesus Christ. His invitation is being extended to you today. And frankly, every single other day. He's inviting you to step into his life. He's inviting you to let him lead the way. Trust me, he says. Life is incredibly uncertain. None of us are assured another breath, frankly. Yet we have a God who leads us right through that uncertainty. Third thing, and we're going to finish with this one. Well, we all know that there's death in this world. God came to overcome it. God came especially in the person of Jesus Christ to overcome death. On Friday in Connecticut, there was senseless death. Just like this first Christmas a couple thousand years ago, there was senseless death. And in both of those instances, and how many countless, uh, this isn't a new thing. Madmen going on crazed rampages is not a new thing. We see it unfolding on the pages of Scripture itself. And in both of those instances and all the ones in between, cries of young children, far too young children, pierce the air. Innocent victims of the very, very worst kind 
of selfishness. And yet 2,000 years ago, there was a child who was saved. There was a child who got carried off in the protective arms of his parents. And he was and he is a survivor. And even though he was a survivor on that day, what we know is the rest of the story. And that that one child who was saved a couple of thousand years ago would one day become an innocent victim himself. Jesus, dying on the cross, not for the things he did wrong, because he didn't do any, but for all our wrong, all our shame, all our sin, all our stuff. And see, because of everything that Jesus Christ did, by his very coming, he became the offering, he became the ransom, he became your and my sacrifice, defeating death, overcoming death. And so we see every single one of us, every single day, there's death. God came into the world to overcome death, and we're reminded of that all the time. People we know, people we love, pass away from this life to the next life, and we miss them immensely. I've been doing my best to sort of set myself into the place of those families in Connecticut. And I, I, I just cannot imagine the anguish of those families yesterday and today as they're on really the front edge of missing the ones they love so much. The sound of their voices, the touch of their hands, their idiosyncrasies, the things that they, only they did and only they said and the like. And we sort of feel this emptiness and the scar in our lives. The scar in the lives of those families, it will probably never heal because the sting of death is very real. And I assert that God didn't come to take all of that away. The emptiness and the scar will always be there likely, just like suffering and uncertainty are very much here to stay. But the message of Christmas time is that God takes away the forever sting of death because of everything that Jesus Christ did. By his death and by his burial and by his eventual resurrection, he conquered death and he conquered hell. He conquered the grave and he gives, he offers victory over all of that. It's him. He came to conquer and overcome even death. I was reading early this week about a family they started putting up a nativity scene, like the original Christmas scene in their front yard like they did every year. It was sort of a family, all hands on deck kind of effort. They were all dutifully carrying out these roughly two foot styrofoam statues attempting to put together their nativity scene. You can picture it, can't you? Finally, they had gotten everything out and they got it assembled into the one spot where they always set it up so that they could light it and all of that. And of course, there was Mary and there was Joseph and there was baby Jesus and there was the angels and the shepherds and there was a bunch of styrofoam barnyard animals. And then all of a sudden, the family's youngest son, he disappeared. They weren't quite sure where he had gone to, but he reappeared just a few minutes later carrying one of his favorite toys in all the world, this four-foot-tall blow-up Tyrannosaurus Rex. 
Now, that Tyrannosaurus Rex, in comparison to the other two-foot-tall styrofoam figurines, it was way out of place. It was enormous, and it was gaudy, and it towered over everything, not at all befitting of the birth scene of the Savior of the world. The dad, he knelt down next to his son, and he tried to tell him, son, you got to take the dinosaur away. The dinosaur doesn't belong in the Jesus-born scene. He was not, the dinosaur wasn't one of the barnyard animals that night. See, and he tried to even reason with his son, you know, dinosaurs existed a long time before Jesus was born, and so it's just way out of time, way out of place. Take it away, but the son was insistent. My dinosaur has to stay, Dad. And so they left it there, and it was awkward, and they tried to tuck it in behind the other figures. And so there's this four-foot-tall, very fierce-looking dinosaur hovering over Jesus' birth scene. You can see that in your mind's eye, can't you? And that dad sort of stepped back with his family all around him, and he was reflecting on this very odd-looking arrangement, thinking, what am I going to say to the neighbors and all these other things? And it's sort of in this insightful moment, he realized that this dinosaur in the midst of the nativity scene said way more than he realized at first glance. And he wrote these words. He said, over every single one of us, there is some highly menacing character, some highly menacing circumstance, some highly menacing tragedy, even, that threatens to rob every single one of us of the joy and the peace and the life that God intends. And he goes on and he says, in the face of all that, Jesus' arrival on that very first Christmas reminds us that the baby born in a manger is stronger than all of the menacing dinosaurs in your life or mine or anybody anywhere here, Connecticut, around the world. Jesus' arrival on that very first Christmas reminds us that the baby born in a manger is stronger than all of the menacing dinosaurs in your life or mine. And that's just true. It's just very, very true. God, through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, has come to help every single one of us in our times of suffering today. He has come to lead us in our times of uncertainty today. And he has come today to give us victory over death. And he stands alive today, offering himself to every single one of us as the overcoming gift, the one who towers above every menacing circumstance in our life or in our world. He towers Will you take him up on his invitation? Will you not just give intellectual assent to that and say, yeah, I, I know that, but will you take him up in a very real, faith-filled way this Christmas time? Take your stuff, if you would, and set it aside, and I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and just move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord, if you would.
that menacing figure, that menacing circumstance in your life, will you just offer that thing up to God right now? And will you just tell him from the depths of your heart with all the faith you can muster in this moment that you believe that he's bigger than that. That you believe that he came to overcome even that. Tell God that you believe that Jesus came to overcome what happened on Friday in Connecticut. And would you ask him gently and humbly to come into the lives of all those families who have been so greatly impacted, wrecked, And ask him to help them overcome that. Ask him to give them strength even today to get up. God wants you to know today that his offer of love and his offer of salvation, his offer of eternal hope, the hope that allows any of us to live in relationship with him, the door is wide open today to every last one of us. And maybe as you've been rattling around in your inner world in these moments, you realize that your inner world isn't well. It's a mess, frankly. It's not at all in harmony with God. God's inviting you to step into his life today. He's inviting you to step into saving hope. The salvation that he came to bring. He's inviting you home. And if that's the desire of your heart today, I invite you to pray with me right now. You can pray along with me this way. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for helping me realize how far from you I am Thank you, Jesus, for helping me realize how very much I need you. I need a savior. And Jesus, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. And thank you, Jesus, for rising. And thank you, Jesus, for showing me how it is to live in your kingdom here on this earth. I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you my everything, Jesus. And if you're a person who's stepping into faith in Christ for the first time, that's the biggest deal in your whole life. Nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal around here. We invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And I'm going to ask you to be real bold and do that with me right now. Nobody's looking around this room. It's just you, me, and God. If you prayed with me just then, would you just real boldly slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just let me say yes with you? 
You can do that right now. Just slip your hand up and lock it. Yeah, right there. Absolutely. And there, yes, absolutely to my right. Yes. Absolutely, yes. Way to go, ma'am. Way to go. And so, Jesus, we say our hearts are crushed. We don't understand it all. And yet, God, our commitment is that we're going to relentlessly cling to you. We're going to relentlessly pursue you with all we've got, all the faith that you give us. And Jesus, I pray for families in Connecticut today, families all across this country who are impacted. God, that you would be very real, very tangible, very present with them. And that you would do the heart work, the soul work that only you can do, God. And we know it's a process and it's not overnight. But God, that you would touch folks and that you would use even us in Bozeman, Montana to make a difference, make an impact for you on lives a whole country away. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our ever-present hope in times of trouble. We love you and we worship you and we declare that you are the King.